Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a special chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, I am in the chat room, as are a number of our chat roomies. We have regulars in there, and we have people that are in there for the first time ever. It's a great place to meet people, share ideas, and expand your horizon. So do come join us. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. I also love how you expand on some of the ideas that come out through the radio show. And, um, you know, you often get some really great comments from people that you might not expect there. Very often, our guests will show up in the chat room and, and comment before or after the show. So do join her. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In the spotlight this week, we turn our attention once again to mind-to-mind communication. We reported right here in Provocative Enlightenment when the first mind-to-mind direct communication was achieved. Now, this past week, I learned of another conducted here at the University of Washington in which researchers have successfully replicated a direct brain-to-brain connection between pairs of people as part of a scientific study following the team's initial demonstration a year ago. In the newly published study, which involves six people, Researchers were able to transmit the signals from one person's brain over the Internet and use these signals to control the hand motions of another person within a split second of sending that signal. Let me repeat that. Researchers were able to transmit the signals from one person's brain across the Internet and use those signals to control the hands of another person. Imagine what might lie in the near future. A mind somewhere connected via the Internet. I wonder if they can do this surreptitiously to another mind, and it somehow takes control of your body. I mean, this is sort of possession technology, isn't it, Ravinder? It is. I find the whole idea really scary. It's like a... Our science fiction of yesterday is coming true right now. Oh, but you haven't seen the tip of the iceberg. Uh We already possess technology that puts the mind in direct contact with machinery. Most people know that. I mean, prosthetic limbs are in direct Uh contact today. We also have some other rather amazing things happening in this arena. For example, musicians may be able to shortcut the normal composition method by using EEG headwear devices that record electric signals that are produced when the brain is at work and can connect them wirelessly to a computer. The wearers can also train their minds to associate a set of EEG brain signals with a specific task. So, for example, thinking about pushing a button on a computer screen 
will produce a unique brainwave pattern that the computer software can recognize and associate with the task. To make music, such thoughts are associated with notes or sounds to create a language of musical thought that's produced directly from the brain. With this established, users can simply think musical scores to life and play them via the computer. If you're a musician, accomplished or beginner, you'll want to check out Mind Ensemble. That's Music and Neural Dimensions from the University of Michigan, if this interests you. Okay, or if you want to screen out phone calls, get this one. Regaro Scorsione's uh, Good Times app filters the incoming calls of busy mobile phone users by simply monitoring the state of the user's brain. Earlier this year, Scorsione won an AT&T mobile app hackathon with the iOS app, which uses a brainwave reading headset to monitor brain activity and reroute calls to voicemail when it perceives that the user's brain is busy with other tasks. If the user's brain is in a receptive state, well, then it lets the call go through. Okay, now try this one. This was reported by the National Geographic. A Chilean company has announced the first object to be created by thought alone, paired with the growing power of the latest 3D printing machines. George Lakoski, the chief technical officer of the Sandy, uh, Santiago-based startup ThinkerThing, created the first ever such object in January of 2012. The ThinkerThing system employs an emotive epoch EEG headset to map its wearer's brainwaves. Then the company's own software, called Emotional Evolutionary Design, displays building block shapes on a computer screen. From a basic beginning, the shapes change and evolve while the user's emotion, you know, emotional state, positive or negative reactions, uh, those changes are monitored by the headset. As the software processes brain feedback, the well-received shapes and changes are kept and expanded while the disliked ones fade away. The process is repeated until the final object is produced according to the thought preferences of the designer. So the company took its technology to what they called the Monster Dreamer Project. And they gave school kids the opportunity to use this software, connect the EEG, 3D printer, and create the monster of their dreams, or nightmares as you prefer to see it. And they did so in a matter of minutes. The promise for a mind-mediated and equipment-operated world has arrived. Not long from now, we will see mind-operated automobiles, according to German engineers at the Free University of Berlin. In our last report, we discussed a mind control study in which a human wagged the tail of a rat using a mind control interface, and that study's been replicated. Researchers at Harvard Medical School in Boston created a system that connects a human to a rat via a computer without the need for a human or the rat to have brain implants. A short video of this can be seen on YouTube. It's pretty incredible. Just, you know, Google wagging the tail of a rat with a mind and you will get it. There are many devices today designed for mind control and some of them employ subliminal content. Indeed, the Oculus Virtual Reality Game Controller that we covered here on this show 
is a subliminal command controller that Facebook spent $2 billion acquiring. You might ask why, but that would be truly a naive question. Meantime, the progress of artificial intelligence is astounding. So, is it possible that soon the human mind may well be able to meld with the software of an AI program, maybe with a Google Glass or something, and take on the combined intelligence of both. That appears to be at least one of the grand goals. What a world awaits us. Science fiction writers have a heyday today. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, it sounds amusing. It sounds exciting. You know, it is technology. Um it will get introduced as a convenience, you know, a technology to have your life be easier and all of that stuff. And in the process, we just give away more and more of our control. You know, I could, I could easily see a day where we all have chips in us and they're planning on putting microchips in us anyway. Yeah, that's part of the Affordable of Care the, Act. Um, you know, they, they'll do that and they'll just tweak it and... Soon we will literally be marching to the tune of a different drummer. If we're not already, I don't know. But you get, yeah, you have to enjoy. But it you will have be to done out appreciate. Of you have to appreciate the pace of technology. I mean, what about speaking of technology? What about the Rosetta mission? Three hundred seventeen million miles from home, and they had a perfect soft landing. Uh, on the comet, can you believe that? What was that, Comet 67P, isn't it? Isn't that what it's called? I don't remember, but that that is the coolest thing. There isn't any anything to be afraid of in that. I think that is just cool, cool, cool. Well, it addresses technology in advance of it. It's just incredible. Okay, every week I read some of your letters. as our way of paying respect uh, to the very important role that you play in making this show successful. Last week, we discussed the world's most haunted house. Roger wrote, I don't want to believe there is some place like hell, but what else are we to believe based on those hellish NDEs and the attacking entities we hear about? We either dismiss spirit proof altogether where it comes from a medium or an NDE, or we face the fact that we are e- there are evil spirits and they must have some place to go. And hopefully that place is not where I'm going. I share that sentiment, Roger. I hope it's not where I'm going to. Cheyenne wrote, William Hall seems so credible, so down to earth, and totally unlike so many that claim to know it all. Thanks for bringing him to the show. I know evil spirits exist. Well, you could have expanded on that, Cheyenne. It kind of leaves us dangling, but thank you for your letter. Karma wrote, I appreciate your guest's hesitancy to define evil, but evil is evil, and we all recognize it when we see it. What's more, you can ask anyone for an example of evil behavior, and they will be able to give you one. So I agree with you. There is evil in the world, and that suggests a place where evildoers go that is different from where the good people go when they die. Now, last week, I shared a letter from a listener who thought I was wrong to challenge what I refer to as baffle gap. Simply defined, that's an argument full of logical inconsistencies or one that uses the language of science without a clue as to what it really means. Two quick examples. An inconsistent argument might insist on a world where evildoers are just those who agreed to do evil on the other side in order to teach us forgiveness, and yet then include in their description of the afterlife 
a purgatory. That makes no sense at all. An inappropriate use of scientific terminology might include a statement such as, the Schumann frequency is speeding up. Now, the Schumann frequency is the speed at which radio waves travel around the Earth. So, in effect, they would be claiming that the radio waves are speeding up. But when asked, they have no idea of the relationship between radio waves and the Schumann frequency. Okay, regarding my treatment of guests who might make statements of this nature, Richard wrote, Actually, Eldon, I think you are too soft sometimes. You are very kind to all, yet sometimes a little more of a hard line would seem appropriate. We all listen in because you hold the line on demanding some intellectual integrity. Well, thank you, Richard. I appreciate that. Dennis wrote, your enlightening shows always make my five-mile hikes go by much faster. Scott wrote, Eldon, love your work and never miss a show. Lisa wrote, I swear by these programs, the music on the Esteem program nearly brought me to tears. It is so beautiful. Tell Eldon, thank you, thank you, thank you for the years of awesome stuff. Now, that's really nice. Thank you, Lisa. And Vincent wrote, love the mind programming book and your internet radio show. Thanks for sharing. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. Now to this week's show, the relationship of consciousness to physics. There are lots of folks out there who use the words of physics to explain everything from the supernatural to the nature of God. Most are way over their head using a language they don't understand while insisting that traditional science is just simply not ready for the shift in paradigms necessary to incorporate and accept their assertions. Right here on this show, we have taken a few of them to task. That said, today's guest is the real deal, and we are very pleased that he has agreed to join us. Fred Allen Wolf is an American theoretical physicist specializing in quantum physics and the relationship between physics and consciousness. He earned his Ph.D. in theoretical physics at UCLA in 1963. He's a prolific writer, and he lectures throughout the world while continuing his research on the relationship of quantum physics to consciousness. He is probably best known as the National Book Award-winning author of Taking the Quantum Leap. In academia, Dr. Wolf has challenged minds at San Diego State University, the University of Paris, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, the University of London, Birkbeck College, the Han Meiter Institute for Nuclear Physics in Berlin, and many other institutions of higher learning. Former professor of physics at San Diego State University for 12 years, Dr. Wolf lectures, researches, and teaches worldwide. Dr. Wolf has also appeared as the resident physicist on the Discovery Channel's The No Zone and on many radio talk and television shows around the world. His work in quantum physics and consciousness is well known through his popular and scientific writing. He is the author of 11 books, including his latest, Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe, a glorious read. Today, we will be discussing several of his books and his involvement in two films, What the Bleep and the Secret. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Fred Allen Wolf. Thank you, Eldon. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Ah, it's our honor indeed, sir. I've looked forward to this one for a long time. 
You know, we, we like to get at least three objectives accomplished with our guests, sir. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So please tell us a little more about yourself, your background. I mean, were you raised a religious child? Uh, did you, you know, uh, believe in ghosts and ghouls and afterlife? Did you, uh, were you popular in school? Were you involved in sports? Uh, you know, what led you to study physics and, and to the career that you have today? Well, let's start out with my raising. I was born in Chicago, Illinois, some years ago, in 1934, so I'm reaching my 80th year on this planet. Hey, congratulations. Uh, thank you. And uh, uh, I was just a pretty normal kid, born and raised in the north side of Chicago. I liked the usual things that kids like. Uh, I liked sports. I played a lot of sports, played football, played basketball, baseball. And, of course, I like girls. I mean, I was just a pretty normal, horny kid. <laughs> I, had, yeah, I love it. <laughs> I had no basic interest in anything other than uh, enjoying myself, which is what I basically did. I also was a pretty smart kid, so I had no problem with school. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it generally wasn't as interesting to me as <clears throat> my friends, uh, my sports, and, of course, having uh, lots of girlfriends. Anyway, that was my early upbringing. But uh, even before that, when I was around 10 or 11 years old, my mother took me to see uh, a movie. And uh, generally when there's a movie, there's a couple of things which probably influenced me. One was they used to have, um, after the movie, they would play a short. And it was a typical kind of like serial short. I don't know if you're Go back to the days when I do, I do, I remember them. Like, yeah, <laughs> like Captain Marvel and Superman, yep. and Captain Marvel was one of my really favorite heroes. And uh, so uh, later on, in fact, I, I used the Captain uh, version and appeared with Timothy Leary on the stage for the Wilshire Evil Theater in L.A. as Captain Quantum, which then turned into my movie persona, Dr. Quantum, which is uh, uh, also part of the movies we'll probably be talking about later. The it's also one of your books, Dr. Quantum, The Grandfather Paradox. It's, uh, of, uh, it's a cute book. It's an enjoyable read. Thank you. <clears throat> and so, uh, uh, anyway, uh, there was also a newsreel. This was about 1945, and uh, the newsreel was uh, showing the atomic bomb blast at uh, Alamogordo. Uh, and when I saw that, something affected me. And I decided that if I was going to study anything, I wanted to know how do you do that. I wanted to know what was the nature of that reality, because that really blew my mind as well as blew up a lot of things. So <clears throat> my interest in physics really started at a very early age, although I didn't really pursue it very much. I was still interested in the other things I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> but uh, when I graduated from high school and I looked through college curricula, um, and since I was raised in Chicago, Illinois, I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and the only curricula curriculum that really interested me was physics. And in particular, since I like to understand how things work, I took what is called engineering physics, which is physics with a strong bent towards 
using your hands to make things or understand things right. from an engineering point of view. So <clears throat> that got me started. By the time I graduated from the University of Illinois, I get, became more interested in theoretical physics and then took a Ph.D. in theoretical physics at UCLA um, and went on to work for various firms, including the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory, General Atomic in San Diego, and finally took a position as a professor at San Diego State University. It was my permanent position. And then I took leaves and traveled all around the world where I had posts at various different universities and uh, colleges and places, uh, institutes uh, in, right. in Berlin and, and uh, Jerusalem and uh, uh, Calcutta. I mean, I had a... A pretty interesting career during that time. I am going to ask you about that too, but you, you, you've touched on a couple of things here. That first, were you? I mean, other than being a horny kid, were you also a religious kid? No, no, I had no interest in religion at all. And okay. uh, uh, the the what what got me started on on that uh, side, or what, what I might call the spiritual aspect of uh-huh. my work and my interest, um, really was. Uh, Oh, uh, it, it, it began when I was in Paris. I was a, I was visiting professor at the University of Paris, uh, and uh, at the time, a friend of mine uh, sent me a book uh, called The Cipher of Genesis by Carlos Suarez, uh-huh. and uh, it's a book about Kabbalah. And uh, I looked at it curiously, and my friend said, well, look, why don't you go visit the author? He lives right in Paris. So I said, okay, I'll go visit him. And so I went to visit Carlos Suarez, and that was my first encounter with a Kabbalist. And uh, uh, what he had to say was interesting from an intellectual point of view. Not so much was he trying to do a wow-wow, uba-uba to me and make me feel, <laughs> oh, la, 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 wasn't that kind of stuff. It was pretty much an intellectual discussion of what one could learn from a study of the meaning of the Hebrew letters themselves. Yeah. Sacred themselves. letter energies, yep. And uh, they could evoke creative energies in a person. I, I got very interested in that. Mm-hmm. And we began talking and uh, had arguments, which he liked. I, mm-hmm. I thought maybe I was maybe insulting because I argued with him. He said, look, I'm very glad you came because I get rabbis that come here, and I tell them what I'm talking about, and they don't understand a word I'm saying. And not only that, they say, oh, yeah, okay, well, I don't know, and they leave. But you at least <laughs> offer resistance, which is necessary in order to have an intellectual discussion. And sure. that's it. So we met for many, many times. And uh, out of that came a book that I wrote with my friends called uh, Space, Time, and Beyond. And it was a cartoon book that came out in 75, just after my visit with Suarez in, 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 in Paris. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, it became an instant bestseller. I mean, it was very surprising. It was a cartoon book. My friend is an art is an, is a cartooning artist. His name is Bob Tobin, and my other friend Jack Sarfati uh, is another physicist. And we put together this book, and it, it was very, very, very popular. And that started me off on a writing career because I wasn't wasn't sure what I was going to be doing other than being a professor at San Diego State. It still well, is a great book. I'm going to ask you to hold it right there, uh, Professor, because we have a hard break and I don't want our conversation kicked out. I must admit, however, very quickly that I'm, I'm relieved that it was a Kabbalist that 
moved you towards spirituality and not Timothy Leary. But when we come back, I'm going to ask you, since you dropped his name, about that association with Timothy Leary. We're speaking with Professor Fred Allen Wolf about his work and books, including his latest, Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe. You can learn more about him and his work by visiting Fred Allen Wolf. That's Fred, F-R-E-D, Allen is A-L-A-N, Wolf.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. It's not your fault until you know better. Self-defeating, self-sabotaging thoughts can be eliminated. It may be difficult to accept, but the fact is, magnetic resonance imaging shows us that your subconscious mind makes almost all of your decisions, while your conscious mind makes up reasons to explain your choices. In order to rid yourself of those self-defeating thoughts and ideas, the fear and doubt that can hold you back, you must change the way you talk to yourself. Nothing does this faster or better than our patented InnerTalk technology. Scientifically proven effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies, InnerTalk has repeatedly been demonstrated effective. Change has never been easier. Now you can improve your life almost automatically by rewriting the scripts hidden away in your subconscious. Guaranteed to work. No reason to wait. So don't delay. Go to InnerTalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Fred Allen Wolf about his work and books, including his latest, Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe. Now, we ask our guests for up to three songs, songs that have some special significance to them. Music does elicit memories, often calling on some deeply emotional feelings, and in many ways, as we've discussed here before, our favorite music can say a lot about who we are. So now we just played White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. All right, Professor Wolf, why this song? Why, why, what does this one mean to you, sir? Well, the major meaning that it, it has for me is that things aren't as they seem, that just because the world appears to be a certain way, and most importantly, just because you think of yourself the way you do, may not be the way it really is, and that there may be alternative ways, mind-blowing ways of operating in the universe in such a way that it becomes a much greater, more meaningful, more joyful experience for you. And that essentially has been uh, the fundamental mode of my operation is to find out, really, how does God do it? How you does know. the universe get created? And why is it that things aren't the way they are? And why is it that we have illusions or create realities in which we don't necessarily fulfill the needs that we may be able to do? I'm not saying there's an absolutely perfect solution to this problem, but I'm saying that if you can seek the solution to the problem, it may give you some answers that may surprise you. Sure. And what a perfect segue to where we left off in the last, uh, before the break. Mind-blowing. I'm going to take that. Tell me about your relationship, your experience with Timothy Leary. Professor Wolf? It looks like we just lost Professor Wolf. We'll get him back here in just a minute. And... Uh, while we do, what do you think of uh, of the whole idea of uh, what's what's implicit in White Rabbit? You okay? Uh, we had some dead air space there. Well, Ooh, we're still did, trying you to killed get... me out. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't kill. <laughs> anyway, you were saying, and, and please, the idea of thinking about. Thinking out of the box definitely has a, a great deal of appeal. I think that's where originality and creativity can come from. So the fact that the world may not be quite as we seem, well, I've thought about that throughout my entire life. Of course, you have the concept of, you know, am I just part of a dream? Is, you know, am I somebody else's dream? Or is everyone else just part of my dream? Well, you, you know, that type of thing I think most people think of unless I'm just a freak. Um, but, yeah, the, just the fact that there can be more is, is definitely worth uh, worth thinking about, worth being open to, because when you're open to it, then the possibility of seeing things differently is there. There you go. You know, I, I, I totally concur. I think you have to be open. You know, on the other hand, you and I have discussed on many occasions how important it is to discriminate. I mean, there, there's a level of being open and a level of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to, 
I'm going to pay attention. I'm, I'm a, it's possible that there are many things that go on in the world, in the universe, that I don't have the slightest clue to. But then there are things that uh, just simply don't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, we have talked on this show about many of those. But, you know, the, the notion that, for example... It doesn't matter what anybody does in this life because everything that they do in this life is for all intent and purposes uh, part of a plan. And uh, and therefore, you know, it, it, it's something they agreed to do on the other side. And uh, and there is no no right or wrong. It, it, you just accept it all. You know, uh, if, if somebody is born uh you know, with an extra chromosome, well, you know, that's their karma. That's that's something that they they designed. If uh, if some child is the victim of a pedophile, well, that's the way you know the grand scheme works. You know, those kinds of things are nonsense. They're just pure, unmitigated nonsense. If we begin to accept that, then there isn't a moral fabric by which we operate in our lives. Everything is okay. There is no compass. No, forget moral compass. There is no compass. There is no no society for all intent and purposes. If that becomes the order of how we live, then everything rules. I don't know why we haven't got... Uh, I do. No, he is, he is back right now. So he, I think he, Dr. Wolf is there. Are you there, sir? Professor Wolf? Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry about the cutout. I'm not sure what the reason was. I I don't know either. I don't see you on the board, but I'm really glad you're back with us. I thought maybe I offended you by asking you about Timothy Leary and you were checking out. No, 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 no. Totally not. No, I have. Uh, I you can ask me anything you want about Timothy Leary. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just I'm glad you're back. We, we I don't know how much of what you heard. We were discussing the implications of your music or your musical choice, White Rabbit, and um, and being open and excited and uh, able to take in the universe while at the same time discriminating, not just accepting anything and everything out there. Uh, but that's what we were. Where where the question was that I left you with was asking you, please share with us what it was like, uh, what your experience with Timothy Leary were like. Well, first of all, uh, I've only uh, really met him a couple of times. Um, and uh, uh, he's, I found him quite enjoyable, uh, an interesting guy, uh, a pioneer in the use of psychedelic drugs for attempting to alter or open up states of consciousness. For that, of course, he was uh, locked up and put in jail. Uh, This was a a time when uh, uh, people were very much afraid of uh, drugs. And uh, while uh, drugs are certainly uh, part of our culture, uh, they are things which have to be used with a great deal of caution, uh, particularly if you have a young mind. So, uh, you know, there are goods and like any, anything new that, is, that we have that comes into our way of being, our way of, of dealing with life, uh, there is going to be both a good side and a bad side to it. Right. So uh, drugs have both sides of those. Uh, I've experimented with uh, LSD, and uh, uh, I've spent time with shamans in the Peruvian jungle taking ayahuasca, 
and I had uh, very deep insights into the nature of my what is called self, what is a self, um, the nature of uh, my spiritual being, uh, that I don't believe I could have gotten any other way because of the uh, lockjaw effect of culture on our way of being in the universe. Uh, most of us get so locked into a way of being in the universe that we don't really get a chance to experience alternate realities, which may open up the door to a new way of being in the universe, and thus opening up the doors to a very creative way of being in the universe. And for me, that was uh, that was very, very important. A lot of my creative work came, I think, because of the influences of people like Tim. And, Tim uh, Leary, I'll be golly and, darn. And, and uh, Robert Wilson is another guy who is... Uh, yeah. Uh, who wrote and uh, spent time with. Uh, I'm not saying I spent a huge amount of time with them. My m- most significant time was spent with Carlos Suarez, in which I began to see uh, connections between consciousness, Kabbalah, and quantum physics. You know, I, I appreciate your candor. I totally do. I have to ask you, though, um, from the sound of it, it, it's almost as though you're recommending a mind-altering experience of such in order for people to become more uh, connected spiritually. Is that what... I well, mean, did I... let, me, let me put it this way. Um, let's say that you are a depress, depressive individual mm-hmm. who finds uh, traditional uh, methods of uh, overcoming your depression, mm-hmm. such as alcoholism, even drug addiction, um, anything which puts you in a state of consciousness in which you are definitely feeling sense of loss, mm-hmm. uh, suicidal, um, there are possible drug therapies that are uh, not traditional. One of the drug therapies, non-traditional, that could help is something called ayahuasca. And it's not a pleasant drug. It's nothing you're going to get addicted to. In fact, it just it, it's almost like a poison. And when you take this, it opens up visions uh, of yourself that you may not want to look at, but as a result, it could help and has helped uh, through institutes that are located in uh, in Terrapoto, Peru, and other places uh, to deal with uh, serious uh, addiction problems. People go down there to these institutes, and they take ayahuasca, and they open themselves up. And as a result, uh, they uh, find that there's a great cure rate to alcoholism. So the 12-step program may be fine, and if it works, keep it up. But if it doesn't work, there may be alternative therapies that you're not going to get by taking drugs that you get over the counter uh, or even drugs that are represented or or given to you by psychiatrists, which are mind-altering. But ayahuasca may be something that you might, might want to take. In other words, there, there are ways of dealing with uh, our experience that open us up. So I'm not recommending these things to anybody. Don't get me wrong here. I'm simply saying that there are alternatives, and you can find out about them. You can investigate them uh, online before you make any decisions. All right. Well, there are all kinds, and, uh, you know, we don't have to go to Peru uh, 
we can consult some of our own local Native Americans if that's the uh, direction well, somebody a, wants to go. That's a possibility as well. Uh, there are Native American uh, uh, situations. Uh, most of the I've, I've spent, I wrote a book called uh, uh, The Eagle's Quest, uh, yes, in which I, I have it right here. I, I spent you know a couple of years involved with various Native traditional methods, um, shamanhood. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, medicine people in the in, in American Indian tribes, and also in Peru and even in England uh, and uh, the United States, where I really got involved and and, and wanted to find out uh, more about what these substances are and what in what they were. This was like twenty or thirty years ago. I mean, I'm not doing it now. Um, right. But, uh, in fact, I'm going to ask you some questions about that book a little later in the show. But before we get directly into some of your books and work, Professor Wolf, I'd like to get some basics out of the way. You stated that quantum physics is subject to a range of debatable hypotheses. What did you mean by that, and how does this statement qualify your own ideas? Well, there are not necessarily hypotheses. Hypotheses, in the sense that you may be using that word, but I would call it, uh, when you use the word interpretations, there okay. are many alternative interpretations to what quantum physics is telling us. And uh, the, uh, there, there is no one best interpretation. These alternative interpretations, uh, as far as what they lead to in terms of our human experience with nature give us the same human experiences with nature, but what they mean to us could be radically different. For example, um, one aspect of quantum physics is something we call the observer effect. Mm -hmm. This is an effect which arises as a simple result of the way and means by which we go about making observations of natural phenomena. Um, If we uh, look at what quantum physics tells us about these natural phenomena, we find that it predicts that alternative possibilities can be arising simultaneously, ergo as one possible object prediction. could appear in two places or more places at the same time, alternatively. Yet when we experience these things that are alternative, we only see one of the alternatives arising. We see the particle or the object in one place at one time rather than in two. Yeah. But the theory predicts that they could be in more than one place. And there are good reasons why that theory is correct, which I don't think we can go into, but you can find in my book, Taking the Quantum Leap, or my book, Parallel Universes. So there are, many, there are, there are different ways, because of our experiences telling us one thing, based upon what quantum physics tells us, the, in, in, in theory, uh, we can interpret what's happening in different ways. One way is our mind is the ultimate chooser of reality, and it uh, 
stops the alternative realities from popping up into making only one reality when our mind engages it, engages with quantum physics. Something pops into existence. I use that metaphor of the popping of the right. popping of the quiff, popping of the quantum wave. Uh, another alternative is that um, what happens when we interact with quantum stuff is that we ourselves get split into alternate realities, parallel universes, if you will. And uh, in each universe, everything seems consistent with what happened prior and what's going to happen next. And uh, the universes, once they split, they rarely ever get back together again. So there's all kinds of ways of dealing with this, and, and I'm not saying... Right, but, you know, Professor, I mean, you're kind of the go-to guy in the New Age. And, and by that, I mean you've appeared in all the films, and and... <clears throat> And I, I want to think consciousness participates in the universe. So I just put that right out there. I really want to believe that. And I see what you do is, is show the world that that is a genuine possibility. Not necessarily proves anything. I mean, for all Einstein and Bohr argued over this interpretation of quantum effects for a long time. And, I, you know, Einstein was convinced that, uh, well, his quote I have right here, I think that a particle must have a separate reality independent of the measurement. That is, an electron has spin, location, and so forth, even when it is not being measured. I like to think the moon is still there, even if I'm not looking at it. So here's the problem. Can we say for certain that there is an objective world per se, and that's what science looks at, if our world is a matter of subjective experience, that is, if the mind is causing the world to pop into it, uh, pop into reality, how can we call, you know, our science subjective? Have we created kind of a mutually exclusive uh, condition here where a pool of consciousness, all human beings, perhaps even other animals, uh, are contributing to what, you know, Jung might have called the collective unconscious, and they're manifesting or popping in reality. And that's a pure subjective aspect that we're calling objective. Isn't that mutually exclusive? Doesn't that, doesn't that, you know, contradict the whole idea of the observer effect? No. First of Please all, Please explain. Well, I, I, I will explain because there's something that there's inherently assumed in your question, which okay. is not put into question, and that is something that everybody does, including scientists. And that's simply that how can there be an objective universe if there is no consciousness to perceive it? How would one even know? That there's an objective universe. Well, that's a philosophical question. You know, if the tree falls in the forest, do we hear it? But no. But what I what I'm trying to say is, look, if a yeah, tree but, falls and kills, yeah, a what rabbit, you're trying to do is separate philosophy from physics. You can't do it. You can't separate okay, but, metaphysics. But you're giving motive to the physical universe, are you not? I mean, look, no, I'm not tree... doing anything like that. I'm simply pointing to a fact, and the fact okay. is that. The existence of an objective universe independent of mind is itself incapable of being proved scientifically. Well, that I totally Not concur true. with, but that let, is a tautology, too. I'm sorry. Well, go ahead. You, you cannot prove that there is a physical universe existing independent of mind. 
You can't do it because you need the mind to even ask the question. So it's a loop in which you can't get out. So it becomes unanswerable, and therefore, in a way, it becomes a kind of a silly pursuance. Why ask such questions that can never be answered? Because you can never get out of something called mind. So I take that as fundamental, that mind itself is fundamental, and that uh, uh, since one cannot investigate mind with any agency other than mind itself, it's a loop. And therefore, in order to even mention or talk about anything outside of mind, one has to assume mind as unexpressed, invisible, hidden, uh, like, for example, give you a simple example. You think of yourself as Eldon Taylor, who's talking to Fred Allen Wolf. But in actual fact, there is no such thing as a Fred Allen Wolf or an Eldon Taylor. Where would a Eldon Taylor or a Fred Allen Wolf even exist? Well, the natural physicalist assumption would be they must be inside of physical bodies, presumably in the brain. And it's the brain that creates the, what do you want to call it, illusion or feeling or sense that there is a person who's named Eldon Taylor or a person who's named Fred Allen Wolf. Okay, okay, Professor, hold it up just right there. When we come back, the illusion of Fred Allen Wolf and Eldon Taylor is where we will pick this up. If you would like to know more about Professor Fred Allen Wolf, and if you don't, I think you're not listening, and his work and books, visit his website at fredallenwolf.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break of our guest discussing his meeting with the Dalai Lama and the impact it had on his career. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The praise for Elton Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Allow me to 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Professor Fred Allen Wolf about his work and books, Bringing Consciousness and Physics Together. Now, Professor, we just played your second musical choice, Sympathy for the Devil by Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. So please tell us, what's up with this one? Uh, well, it's uh, certainly a uh, song which reflects to us the uh, kind of... Uh, uh, unknown aspect to our negative to our to our to our personalities uh, that we all have within us, uh, uh, both pros and cons, both uh, fears and delights. That uh, there is a duality to our nature. I mean, even uh, Freud was pointing this out. Uh, Jung was pointing this out. Uh, right, Zimbargo calls it the Lucifer effect. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, 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 it's definitely in us, and 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 so uh, what uh, what Mick is 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 letting everybody know is look look guys wake up, uh, this this devilish aspect to us or this thing we like to label as evil is really us. So, I mean, who killed the Kennedys? We did. Uh, it's definitely <laughs> part of our nature. It's within us, and uh, by by simply. Uh, hiding it away or pushing it aside or doing as what everybody does, we're good, they are the evil ones. So right. That simply muddies the water because if we don't recognize our own evil, our own uh, self uh, in the other, then we fail to recognize the world as it really is. And religions have a tendency sometimes to uh, to to make those divisions sharper when what they really need to do, um, and I think most the deeper 
mystical spiritual traditions religions do is to show us that we are all connected that we're all one and uh so i think this is uh this is why i like the song interesting interesting i uh i wouldn't put it together that way um you were before the break talking about eldon taylor the illusion fred allen wolf the illusion and and i had to cut you off so we didn't get kicked out uh, please pick it up and, and expand that. And, and then if I may, and I, and, and please, I mean this, uh, you know, not in any antagonistic way, I have to come back and ask you about how the mind cannot be separated from objective reality following your discussion. But, but I mean that only maybe as you did with your Kabbalistic master to truly, truly understand what it is that you're saying, okay? So the illusion. Well, they're both connected together. <laughs> I know. And actually, the illusion is the same thing, which is the uh, the precursor to the question. Uh, you see, let's look at medical, factual knowledge. There is no I inside of you. What I mean by that is that in the body, which is identified by your consideration of what you see when you look in the mirror, in that reflected in that body, uh, there is no Eldon Taylor. There's no there's nothing there's no little guy in there, a little Eldon or big Eldon or whatever you there's no location where that exists. Ergo, there is no Eldon Taylor. Eldon Taylor is if there is something uh, called a center of consciousness labeling labeled as Alvin Taylor or Fred Allen Wolf or whatever you want, whoever else we're talking about who's listening to the show or whatever, um, there is no place in the body where that exists. There is no, there is, there is no location for that, uh, that experience, the experience that we all say and use indiscriminately when we say, I I did this, I love that, I am this, I am not that, I-I-I-I-I-I. Uh, yeah, I agree. I is a um, unfortunate pronoun. There's no But that doesn't, doesn't no eliminate so the is, existence. What's that? I say it's an unfortunate pronoun. I is an unfortunate pronoun. It does tend to well, separate us from everything. But it pronoun. doesn't eliminate existence, does it? I mean, as Gilbert Ryle said I, uh, in answer to Rene Descartes, no, to doubt say, your existence at the time of a ruptured appendix makes no sense at all. I didn't say anything about elimination. I simply said that there is no objective universe without the thought that there is such a thing. As okay, but I mean, let me let me pursue that, if I may. And again, I don't mean to in any way antagonize, but. Sir, science says there is a universe and there was a Big Bang. Uh, If I understand you correctly, there must have been a mind for that Big Bang, because aren't you saying without a human mind there isn't a universe? There is no such thing. How can there be a universe without a thought that says there is a universe? Okay, so then that presupposes... Uh, an unmoved mover, to use the words of Aristotle. If you want to, you, again, that's another thought. And that's another illusion. That's another way of dealing with things which are basically fundamentally mysterious, a fundamental mystery, if you will. There's no way to really deal with that. 
other than to give it a label and then deduce logically what results in a logical, mathematical, scientific, formulational uh, well, there, there really isn't a science way, then, because there's nothing objective for science to be looking at. It really should all just revert to philosophy, the pH in, in physics, the PhD in physics, the philosophy of physics. We should just all revert to philosophy. I, I'm not saying that either. Uh, you, you see, these are your thoughts, and they're fine thoughts, and they're creative in the mind that is on the other end of this telephone line, the Elvin Taylor mind, and they're wonderful thoughts, but that's not what I'm saying. So I'm not sure I'm being clear about what I'm saying, but I, I wish you just to think about what is being said. What's being said is simply this. In order to have the concept of a universe by which we can discuss such things as universe or kidneys or personalities, there must be a thought of that being in existence and a labeling of that as being separate from the I which is beholding that. In other words, information is something fundamental, but only fundamental to a presupposed existing mind mindset I-ness, something of that nature. I'll just call it consciousness, if you will. There must be a pre-existing consciousness in which, or feel, if you wish, I'll use other metaphors. These are the metaphors I use, but they're not necessarily meant to exclude other interpretations of what this means. There may be a mind field, a field of mind, out of which matter itself can arise, and not only can it arise, but the experience it, uh, the experiencing of it arising as information indicating that there was such a thing as a Big Bang 13 and a half to 14 and a half billion years ago, and there is such a thing as an electron existing now, although we never really see it, and there is such a thing as light, uh, that all these things are conceptual ways of mind separating into a perceiver and a perceived and making logical deductions based upon that fundamental, unquestionable, unquestioned way of thinking. And what I'm saying is we're at the level of knowledge right now where even that must be questioned. Ergo, sympathy for the devil. Think about yourself as being something other than that. Mind trip of a white rabbit. Think about the alternative reality which may exist that you may be able to access yourself to if you simply get out of the preconceived ideas that you are what you think you are. And for most people in Western culture, unfortunately, most people think of themselves as being less than the excrement they produce from their own bodies, which is a very unfortunate attitude that people have, low self-esteem. Now, why is it that we, why is it that, that books which influence or help us to get more beautiful, get more sexy, get more this, get more that, are such bestsellers? Why is there an, a feeling of low self-esteem 
embodied in a culture which has much material wealth in which it exists. These are, in, these are in, interesting illusions, uh, interesting ways of dealing with reality that we, as a culture, have brought upon ourselves. Uh, and I think these are questions which need to be looked at. Okay, now I just, by way of clarification, then, we have a mind field, which I would assume is made up of all the individual minds that have come to incarnate and identify, um, and, um, and they are a part of one mind uh, that was the original mind that was the unmoved mover. Have, have I followed you so far in the metaphysics of all this? Except for one word, I would change was to is. There okay, is, is. one mind. Of so we're all actively in, okay. It's, so it's, it's that's that's a form of go ahead. I'm sorry. of being defined by the verb is, was, or will be, mm-hmm. because it's pre-existent before time and space. Time and space are conceptual ways of dealing with human experience and human experience itself is just another abstract concept of which we feel very comfortable uh, being in uh, by which we can deal with uh, the verb of time is was to be okay now in your metaphysics then in this metaphor and I only mean this metaphorically if I may um, what Many people in religion would think of as soul or spirit, that aspect of the individual that survives a physical incarnation, that you see as a aspect of the mind field. I see that as a way that the individual who is recognizing or recognizant of one's limited period of time as a physical entity copes with the fear of facing one's own death. And uh, that may be as properly thought. I mean, here's here's the type of question I get when when this question arises in my audience. Mm -hmm. I don't want to die. I want to keep going on just as I am. Mm -hmm. And this person may be rich, sexy, beautiful, or mm-hmm. whatever. And if they're uh, the opposite of that, they say, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to die. I want to get out of here. Okay. So here we have two forms of this illusion that uh, uh, people want to hang on to or get rid of uh, some aspect that they feel defines them. My point is those are illusions. That which defines you can be possibly found, if you are good at it, in meditation, the moment of silence in which there is nothing but the array, or that not nothing but the realization of, of pure existence. And that realization, which we only get a hint of maybe in meditation, that realization is not differentiated into time and space. Ergo, it's the same in Eldon Taylor as it is in Fred Allen Wolf, as it is in all life forms. 
It's the awareness of pure existence, and that's not differentiated into spatial and temporal boundaries. That fact that's, is that, so mysterious that no one really gets it. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of a Buddhist thought, the individuality. I, I would call into... it a Jewish thought. I would call it an Islamic thought. I would call it a Hindu thought. I would call it a Shinto thought. Well, I would is, call it the thought which is in that, Islam, or for that matter, in Shinto, uh, the individual continues. Uh, I it, don't it does in Hinduism. True. Uh, I think that's your interpretation of Shintoism, but I believe that the fundamental aspect of all religions is is what I think I've just said. So of all religions, there is no. See, I'm kind of lost here because most religions talk about an eternal life. There's a resurrection. There's you know, there's a a judgment. There's a school of life. You know, all of that kind of thing. And what I'm hearing from you is more. It's more uh, uh, a Hartshorn and Reese kind of uh, philosophy of panentheism. What kind of philosophy? Panentheism. Not pantheism, panentheism. Well, it is simply said analogically as the the cells of the body are to the human being. I want to object. I want to object. I don't call it panentheism because that automatically takes what I say and puts it into another box, which is called (laughs) panentheism or thinking. Okay. I'm trying to listen. I've just given you something that you may not have heard before, but you're going to try to box that you want to label because it's comfortable to you to label it as such. And that's what we do. That's what philosophers do. That's what everybody does. When something new is presented, put it in a box that you already understand and label it and then get rid of it because it isn't what you believe and it's only his belief and so what? No, 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 no. I, I don't, I'm not implying that in the slightest. Uh, it is a possibility. In fact, that's my very next question. What you have presented to us as a physicist is a possibility, not a proof that God exists or life is eternal. It would be a form of pseudoscience to use physics in that way, or do you think I'm all wet when I say that? No, I agree. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> let me let me ask you this. I mean, you're uh, asking, wait, wait, wait. Let, let's get down to the nub of this. You are asking right. questions that are based upon what I understand, based upon what I've learned or what I've garnered or what I take as the metaphysical aspect of physics, because there are interpretations. Right. And you can't do physics without, at some point, adhering to or putting your feet into a ground of being, which is your interpretation. And... <clears throat> Uh, what I've tried to do is say, look, I understand that. I understand that that's the mechanism by which people go about trying to do or understand physics. But what I'm also saying is that what I'm trying to do is something a little unusual. I'm trying to embrace them all. I'm trying to say that's one way of being. Here's another way of thinking. Here's another interpretation. I'm saying let's look at them all. You know, now, so our listeners don't misunderstand here, or you, sir. I have a great respect for your work. I've often cited your work. I um, I look at your work as being a possible 
way to explain uh, a corporal existence in a metaphysical metaphor. Uh, the point that I've only been making here is that, you know, the physics of it gives us the possibility that that is indeed how the universe operates. And when we recognize it, what we have done is we've presented a possibility, not a proof. Uh, then what we have is is a position that someone else can't disprove. And, you know, faith is what? Faith is, after all, coming to that point where you have the realization through your personal experience, through whatever, where you have to take that step to believe beyond what you can prove. And uh, and that's one of the things that I appreciate most about your work. Let's Let's do this. I want to discuss some of it specifically, if you wouldn't mind. You were a major player in the film What the Bleep. There have been both accolades and some rather vituperous insults leveled at the film. How do you answer critics that say, and I quote, the film is the latest effort of religious, mystical, and New Age gurus to cloak their views in the mantle of science. Quantum physics and neuroscience are complex and controversial topics. The film discusses them in 20-second sound bites mixed with cutting-edge graphics. The effect is a blend of riveted attention and confusion that puts the critical mind to sleep, softening up the viewer to ideas that begin with human potential and end with walking on water. Close quote. Now, I've defended this film several times. I'm interested in how you respond to that. Very simply, it's only a movie. <laughs> okay. What do you expect? You expect it to be a philosophical discourse on the intimate intricacies of quantum physics based upon the neurophysiological evidence of the way brains operate in an academic environment? Come on, folks. It's only a movie. You know, I think a lot of people take films like this one, and, they again, they want to put them up as proof for what it is that they believe. And, uh, you know, it, it's, as, it's almost as though they're embarrassed to say, this was my experience. Uh, this is what happened to me, or this is what I believe, and this is why I believe it, and without, you know, reaching for some form of armamentarium, you know, let me let me have physics here, or let me have an expert, or let me have you know, in order to defend my perspective, it, when in reality, again, I view this film as just what it is. How deep does the hole go? How far down it does the rabbit go? Uh, what is it that we're not looking uh, at? And, and I thought it was a it was a very well done film, despite the fact that there are a couple of issues that I'm going to have to ask you about when we come back from the break. If you're going to be so kind and stay with us in this next half hour, we're speaking with um, the one and only Professor Fred Allen Wolf. His book is, in my view, a must-read. I don't want you to take anything that has gone on between us as though I disagree with this man. I just like clarification. The book is Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe. All right. We'll be right back after this brief message and paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me 
as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Tell me of your liver, then. Oh, no, I'd be scared. All right. I'll tell you what. Look, listen to this. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious or daft, and you feel that you've had quite enough. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 19 miles a second, so it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power. The sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day. In an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour Of the galaxy we call the Milky Way Our galaxy itself contains a hundred billion stars It's a hundred thousand light years side to side it bulges in the middle, 16,000 light years thick, but out by us it's just 3,000 light years wide. We're 30,000 light years from galactic central point. We go round every 200 million years. And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe. on expanding and expanding in all of the directions it can whiz as fast as it can go at the speed of light you know 12 million miles a minute and that's the fastest speed there is so remember when you're feeling very small and insecure how amazingly unlikely is your birth and pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space cause there's bugger all down here on earth And welcome back. We hope you're enjoying our show. We're chatting with Professor Fred Allen Wolf about his work and books, including his latest, Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe. In this half hour, we will take your calls or handle your questions. You can put them forward by the phone, or you can just join Ravinder in her chat room. And I see the questions building up there already. Now, Professor, we just played Monty Python's Universe Song. What's up with this one? <laughs> well, 
I think that uh, it's a reminder uh, to everybody not to take what they think is real too seriously, and that uh, uh, the upshot of it all is when you really get down to it, it's totally, absolutely, nearly 0% possible that any of this has or will or could even occur, that anything like an intelligent life form could ever form, or anything like you who's listening or watching or hearing what's being said could ever have come into existence in the first place. Statistically, according to evolutionary theories, including the theory of evolution, it's practically zero percent of possibility. I mean, like point zero, and then a billion zeros, and then a one percent possibility. So it's it's like, uh, you know, it, it's a crazy light show. And I think that one has to take that into consideration when one tries to put their mind or their mind at their head or their brain and think about what it is that reality is all about. My fundamental way of dealing with this is it's a mystery. It's a paradox. And those are fundamental, and all we can do is play with those mysteries and paradoxes, and hopefully we can do it in a way which is fun, light, and filled with humor. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about your newest book, Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe. You explain in the book how um, times, how our understanding, I guess I should say, of time, space, and matter have changed in just the last few years. And how with these new ideas, we have a glimpse into, and I'm going to quote this, the mind of God, close quote. So two-part question, Professor Wolf. What do you mean by the mind of God? And, uh, you know, what are these changes that have given rise to deriving this inference from physics? Well, the first part, the mind-God aspect, is uh, uh, clearly what we've been talking about up to now, namely that there must be something called a mind field uh, in order for there to be anything that can recognize uh, something something that is separate from a mind field. And... um, the, the thing that I, I found most fascinating when I began uh, researching this more deeply is that um, one can make the statement that literally, I mean, li- as literally true as we can mathematically and physically prove, everything is actually made of light. So uh, uh, matter itself is, uh, is nothing but light energy, which is reflecting in a very funny kind of way. And that funny kind of way uh, actually gives rise to two kinds of light. Uh, One is the light that we normally consider the light that we see, the light which is used for communication or interaction between the so-called things that are massive, um, and the light that we don't see, but yet in capturing itself, produces the matter that we do see. So there's a kind of zigzag dance uh, that the two forms of light do with each other, and that zigzag dance that these two forms of light do with each other is what constitutes a whole theoretical structure, which we call quantum field theory. 
Now, I'm explaining it in my own terminology, and I'm sure that there are other ways, as we always know with quantum physics, alternative other ways of explaining it. So basically what the universe seems to be or what I, uh, I come to the conclusion is that uh, the universe is the God, is the, the, the mind of God playing with light. The mind of God playing with light. The clay of God is light. Is that another way of saying it? That's another way of saying it. The clay the, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, years and years ago, dealing with the morphogenic field theory, uh, trained people in a dedicated area to do Morse code. And um, he controlled the demographics of the people, etc., so that you had the same average age and sex uh, populating each different group that entered this room to learn Morse code. His hypothesis was that you would build a mind field, not the M field of physics, but uh, he called it an M field, uh, a morphogenic field that would hold the thoughts of those people that it studied. And uh, and as such, you would see uh, it it become easier and easier for the students to do better and better on average, group after group. And lo and behold, that's exactly what he found. Do you believe that this minefield, um, this collective field, uh, this light field, um, it, it, it that field itself has any parts to it? I mean, can we gather as groups and organize thought, as Sheldrake showed, to do things like end hostility in the world? To I mean, I'm looking for a practical side. Your thoughts on that, sir? Well, the the answer is that uh, we have to first of all ask ourselves, how does the noun we, which you refer to in your question, come about in this minefield in the first place? And the answer is, it comes about through the patterning that exists in the minefield, just as uh, as Sheldrake was talking about, morphogenetic, form to genesis, the genesis of form. Uh, And of course, it's clear that there has got to be a morphogenetic field, not just from the point of view of teaching people how to do Morse code, but from the point of view that there is an existence such things that we call particles like electrons and protons and the quarks which make up the nuclei of atoms and atoms themselves, the patterns that they form, uh, the various things that come into existence are clearly indicative of there being these patterns existing in this minefield, playing with light, playing with light. And uh, uh, it's not just helter-skelter. There is an order and a logic to it. And uh, uh, what the universe seems to be doing as it evolves is that it's turning those patterns, giving up those patterns in a certain sense, you might say, into sentient existence, sentient beings, who, in considering those patterns, are using them to produce what might be or could be a better 
way for that sentience to exist. And, of course, in doing so, they are, uh, there are both uh, destructive and constructive aspects to it because the field itself is based upon the mechanisms of annihilation and creation. So uh, one has to be, one has to play the game, and one, but one has to be reminiscent of the fact that we need both the annihilation and creation aspect, or if you will, their ramifications, which would appear in us as what we call good and evil. So in a certain sense, there is maybe counter to what some religions might say. There is no absolute good, because the opposite of absolute good would be absolute evil. And there is only relative good and relative evil on a scale. And there's no ending to where that scale begins or where it ends. Okay, so what we have is an opportunity, if I understand you correctly, for a patterning of consciousness in at least subsets of the consciousness field, the the one mind field, that could uh, ultimately um, enhance the way our sentient existence uh the path that we take is did i get that right yes there is that and there's also the other aspect of it the opposite there, is true there are, right. aspects, there, are the, there are patterns which uh enhance uh a backward look going okay. back to the way it was rather than going forward into new territory because let me take you there if I may. In the nature of the human species um a desire to hold on to what one is familiar with, even if what one is familiar with is uh, ultimately destructive to the person himself. I mean, the experiments done with uh, 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 monkeys and wire mothers and stuff like that. I don't want to get into that stuff, but, 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 but there's clear indications that, that we tend, even if we're raised by horrible parents, we tend to... Uh, to consider those as love objects, and maybe our relationships, therefore, going forward, will be reflective of the horrible uh, ways we were raised as children. So, right. I mean, there, there is that aspect of human nature is to hold on to what we're familiar with rather than letting go. The data there is robust, and it's no one is going to object to that. You know, the abused is going to marry an abused and be an abused and so forth. Let's, but let, let's hang on to that idea for a second, because you appeared in the film The Secret. And for all intent and purposes, the movie, the book, um, puts full culpability on the victim. If, if, if you're a victim, as Bob Proctor said, uh, the, the, the tragedies, the sweat lot tragedies, uh, um, that occurred, the deaths. Uh, Proctor said that it was entirely a matter of the creation of those people involved in that because we attract exactly, you know, what we think about. I cannot believe, well, maybe I should say that differently. I will say it differently. Do you subscribe to the theory that... Mm, a child attacked by a pedophile somehow magnetically through its thoughts or its karmic action asked for that, brought that on. There is no such thing as a victim out there. People are just kidding. They're just desserts. No, I don't. And Thank I you. Know. 
saying I, I never said anything like that in the movie, and uh, in a way, uh, the movie uh, tend to downplay what I did say and emphasize their point of view, which is something I don't entirely go along with. Um, no, I don't believe that. In fact, uh, I think it's silly. Um, uh, there, there are things that happen that uh, uh, can happen. I mean, it certainly is possible that uh, a person could uh, invite uh, a destructive act upon one's person by uh, doing uh, something relatively stupid. Uh, that's certainly possible. Um, I mean... There's a big difference, I would say, between just thinking uh, various things, like I want to be car, or I'm not good enough, or I am good, or I'm ugly, or I'm happy, and taking appropriate action to do something about them. So the so-called law of attraction really should be changed to the law of action. You may have the thought, but what you do as a result of that thought is really weird what determines the behavior of what's going to happen to you. There's no magic genie out there that's going to grant your wish. Uh, uh, of course, there, there, you, you can be careless. I mean, you, you, you know, I, uh, you can get a speeding ticket if you happen to go over a certain speed limit, and uh, uh, and you're the one that's caught, and other people may be driving fast, but you got caught. Well, you can say, well, it's because of something I, because I particularly stood out, or I had the thought that I wanted to get a speeding ticket, and therefore it was me they caught, and, and blah, blah, blah. Or you can have the opposite thought. I'm, um, I'm driving along, and I wish to have a parking spot, so I'm just going to think positive, and, ah, there it is. I created that parking spot by my thought, and you can <laughs> carry those, those illusions. And, and, and as long as you do, uh, there's a certain, you know, you might say there's a certain grace to that, or, okay, uh, fine, I'm the creator of my own reality, and you just extend that all the way to uh, to what I think would be kind of ridiculous. Um, there are things that you yourself or the, the thought patterns that you have uh, are not going to be able to control what another person thinks. Uh, you can't just wish another person to think like you did. Uh, lottery case. I mean, you think, well, if I think positive, I'm going to win the lottery. Well, let's suppose that were true. Let's suppose that it was possible that you could think positively about winning the lottery, and you decide, ah, well, I it works for me, so let me teach. Let me go and write a book, How to Win the Lottery. And everybody reads the book, and says, oh, my God, it works. And now we have five billion people winning the lottery all at the same time. Guess how much they each get? Right. Less than what they bet in the first place. So, therefore, you have to be a little bit more, let's say, cautious, logical, rational about what you mean by thoughts and action. And what I'm saying is you must take action. The appropriate action is what one needs to do. Hey, I, I love what you said. I'm going to quote you the law of action. I have... Uh abused the law of attraction as much as I possibly could on this show with regard to some of its nonsense. Not that there isn't, as you say, um, you know, some truth to that. It's a 3,000-year-old truth. It's not new, but yeah, at any rate, 
you were friends with David Bohm. You visited with David Bohm. How does the holographic universe, the idea of Bohm, or for that matter of Talbot, as he advanced it in the book by that name, how does that fit into the, the scheme of a minefield as you see it? Well, it's interesting you ask, because I think Bohm actually was... Uh, was indicating the existence of this field well before I was. I mean, he... In the implicate order, yeah. Go on, please, flesh it out. Well, the implicate order and the explicate order were aspects of this field, but right. the field was deeper, uh, a deeper reality uh, out of which uh, the realities that we perceive arise. And I think he was uh, very much into that. I mean, he was influenced by Krishnamurti, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, he himself, his own thinking... Uh, was affected by that, and 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 a lot of what he developed was based upon uh, uh, the existence of this field. And but you know the problem is what one doesn't, uh, what tool does one bring to bear in order to gain access, direct access to the field? <clears throat> and the question that seems to, or the answer seems to be, you must bring to bear a way of thinking to bring get access to that field. So. Uh, that's why if you gain access to that field with negative thinking, uh, there may be some truth to the fact that you will get uh, responses from the field which make you feel poorly about yourself. If you approach that field with something called positive thinking, which uh, means you have a generally upbeat sense of yourself, and you approach that field, uh, that what you get out of that field may be a a sense of... uh, reinforcement of your positivity. So in other words, there may be reinforcing aspects to the field in terms of what you bring to bear upon the field. Rather than simply saying, uh, wishing for it, there are actions you must take to reach into that field. There are certain ways of dealing with that field. Uh, One of the things I talk about is something called intent. Uh, Intent is not the same thing as intentions. Intentions are just thoughts about intent. Intent is the active part. Intention is the passive aspect of it. Intent means a vigilant form of observation so that you look at things visually in a certain way. Um, When you look at another person, you would say practice uh, the intent of seeing the other person as a reflection of yourself. Therefore, that other person could not be looked at as being that dirty so-and-so, or that racially blah-blah-blah, or that da-da-da-da, or any negative type of connotation. You would be seeing the other person as, oh, that's me. That's myself. So you look at other person with the intent of seeing something aspectively, uh, positively an aspect of themselves. You bring forth in that field a way of acting, and as a result, the other person may be able to sense what you're doing, because it's one mind after all, and may reflect back to you in a similar positively positive way. So there's that aspect to maybe the, the, the secret, which I don't think they explain very well in the movie. Interesting. All right, sir. Uh, we've got about one minute left, and I want everybody to know in that time, uh, how they can reach out to you, what your website is, where they can get your books, where they can learn about the, you know, your presentations, your lectures, what you're researching, etc. Well, 
the the best way is simply type in the word F-R-E-D-A-L-A-N-W-O-L-F on any search engine, and what will spring forth will be thousands of different sites in which you can find information about me. You can also type in Dr. Quantum, uh, and also things will spring forward. You don't, I have a website, but you know, I, I hardly even look at that website anymore, but there, there, there are so many videos and, and other places where people seem to have uh, things I've said. We're so, out of time. The book is Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe. The website, fredallenwolf.com. Do Google it. The information is rich. Uh, I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week. We're just out of time. Until next time, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.